Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello everybody. Um, this is Ursula and I'm here with Anne, co-founders of Be Above Leadership. And today we have a fascinating um, topic and a fabulous guest. The topic is, no, you don't have a reptilian brain unless you're actually a reptile. Um, so this is Ursula. Anne, why don't you introduce um, the wonderful Joseph Friedman to us? I would love to, and I have to say that the the title for the show actually came out of, Joseph, you might not remember this, but something you said to me the first time we talked over a year ago. So um, Joseph is a researcher and he's a science communicator at the Interdisciplinary Effective Science Laboratory at Northeastern University and Massachusetts General Hospital. And that is co-directed by Lisa Feldman Barrett and Karen Quigley, and it focuses on studying emotions. And this is how I first got in touch with Joseph was, um, actually I think I reached out to you because we wanted to have Dr. Barrett speak at the ICF conference in Prague last year, which she did and was a Mm. huge hit. So super excited to talk with you today about how we are not reptiles and therefore do not have reptilian brains. (laughs) So welcome. It's such a pleasure to be on. Yeah, uh, Anne, Ursula, I'm, I'm really looking forward to chatting. Well, really, really cool. So one of the things that was really disruptive, I want to say, I'll put it in this way, and those of you who know me and Ursula, you know we've been working in this field of trying to translate neuroscience for coaches in particular, coaches and leaders, for about 10 years. And up until about two years ago, we basically taught what is kind of known in the literature as the triune brain model because it was so handy. You know, oh, my God, you have three brains, and when you get stressed, this reptilian brain takes over, and you're kind of, you know, not responsible for your actions anymore. And then in reading Dr. Barrett's book, um, How Emotions Are Made, uh, she makes it pretty darn clear, like, that model of the brain uh, has always been at best metaphoric and isn't very accurate. So, Joseph, can you talk about, I think one of the questions we have is, why is this model so prevalent and popular, and why did it kind of take over our understanding of the brain in the way it has? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I can only be speaking for other folks when I talk about why it's attractive. I'll kind of be speculating there. Um, but I think uh, it's handy to be able to write off uh, certain aspects of your behavior, of your experience as um, instinctual and as uh, required by your biology. Um, I think our models of the law in this country um, uh, reflect that um, and that this is kind of an attractive proposition for a number of reasons. And I think you know, the the history of neuroscience being attractive to people who want to understand behavior and to categorize behavior into, um, you know, some sort of hierarchy from low biological behavior to kind of high, abstract, uh, rational, civilized behavior. I think we can recognize that social urge um, across history. And it's recently, I think there's been a lot of neuroscience that that feeds into that. Um, uh, Rather, I think there's been a lot of... uh, rhetoric that drapes itself yeah. uh, in the kind of fabric of neuroscience, but I, I don't think the actual neuroscience supports that, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, as for the history of this work, I mean, um, the triune brain has come up in uh, different guises. Um, I think uh, when, when I think about the work um, of uh, Dr. Barrett, as you mentioned, she kind of traces this all the way back to Plato, where she says that the work that happened over the course of the 20th century, where you take three different parts of the human spirit, the human experience, and the human biology and separate them into something like the instinct, the emotions, and the rationality. I mean, you have, you know, all the way back to uh, thousands of years of of philosophical history attesting to that. Um, Probably where this reared its head uh, most popularly was in the work of uh, Carl Sagan, um, who's often Mm -hmm. known for popularizing ideas about uh, astrophysics um, and about, uh, you know, more of the of the of the mechanistic side or the, the of the physical side of the natural sciences, less about the social sciences. But um, in his work, I think in the 70s and 80s is where we see a lot of uh, um, the popularizing of uh, the the McLean version of the triune brain theory. 
mm-hmm. Dragons of Eden, I think, was the was the book by Carl Sagan that did it did kind of you know kind of catch take take people a bit by storm and moved this into kind of this oh wow now we can understand ourselves. I'm really fascinated that that you know you think of it going back to Plato how embedded that is in our in our way of looking at the world. Yeah, Dragons of Eden, exactly right. And I mean, um, I was put onto this again by, by Dr. Barrett. In her forthcoming book, you'll find an essay about all of these topics. It's going to be called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. It's coming out in, in November. I highly recommend it. I think super nice. privileged to get a peek at the, the writing process in the manuscript. Um, but that, that book won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and I mean, I think, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, there was a kind of preponderance of the evidence that showed that these ideas were myths or uh mm. you know belong to a, a paradigm that we should we should now consider obsolete um i, I yeah, have some so, ideas about yeah, go no ahead. go ahead well i, I, I have some theories you, well, what oh. what is the myth Paul. so the myth is the no, myth no. is this it's that it's that um i'll actually i'll, I'll jump back to kind of a, a period of actually darwinian history um so just as we were learning about um evolution uh, um, and Darwinian theory was getting popular as we, as, uh, you know, a bunch of um, natural philosophers, biologists uh, in, in England were understanding um, how development worked. They were paying a lot more attention to observing all sorts of different animals. Um, even though uh, Darwin had kind of displaced this idea of a, of a great chain of being, right? This idea that animals are naturally ordered from uncomplex to complex, um, that humans were at the, at the tip of some, at the tip of some ladder, um, that they were, you know, exceptional in some way. Darwin really displaced those ideas because he explained, look, there's these, uh, you know, there, there's this mechanism of variation, um, of selection, uh, that there are ways to understand why, uh, the forms we see now are so different and so varied. Um, and it's not because they came off of an arc. It's because there are processes mm. that happened over the course of billions of years. Um, mm-hmm. Even at that time, though, there, there, were, there were these ideas about recapitulation, um, this, these recapitulation theories, which was that even as an animal develops over the course of, in, in science, this is called ontogeny. Ontogeny is just the development of a single animal. That ontogeny recapitulates evolutionary history, which is called uh, phylogeny. Um, you might have heard the mm-hmm. phrase the phylogenetic tree. That's what Darwin was describing, right, when we know that probably comes from a single common ancestor. Um, that's maybe, you know, the root of the tree, and then it branches in all of these complex ways. Some of those branches were cut off long ago. Some of them we'll, we'll never see. But now we see this enormous tree um, where there's still these kind of families or relationships. So this idea ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny basically said that over the course of an animal's development from, you know, tiny, you know, uh, organism with, with cells that you can count, you know, um, that you can actually comprehend the amount of cells it has. Um, over the course of it being, you know, fe- developing fetally or um, kind of gestating, it actually goes through each of the stages of, um, mm-hmm. you know, coming out from the primordial ocean, that tiny little, you know, in, initial um, joining of haploids looks like, you know, what you might see in the primordial ooze, and then it kind of becomes like a, um, you know, like a fish and then like a reptile or an amphibian and then it crawls out and it's, it actually looks like different, uh, you know, families or uh, genuses of animals over the course of its entire development up until the point at which it's human. They thought that even humans were like this, that there's a point in human development where the human fetus is developing as if it were, you know, a lizard or a bird. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that the, the trion brain theory is kind of similar. It says that our brains carries in it the entire history of animal kinds, that the center of the brain represents the most ancient instincts. Um, there's, the, there's the brainstem. Uh, there's the desire, you know, to maintain uh, heat, um, to, be, to be near, near light or away from it, to have enough uh, energy and sugar to basically keep yourself alive. I mean, this is the reptile brain. Then there's the idea that there's this uh, monkey brain or this mammal brain right, that there's the second uh, intermediary layer that's sedimented on this reptile brain, and that's where we have our emotions. Um, you know, we kind of imagine, uh, in, in this point of view, we imagine mammals and monkeys to be driven entirely by instinct. They get, you know, and, and driven by all these passions. They get furious. They act without thinking. Um, and that middle area, sometimes it's also called the limbic um, 
layer. Yep. Um, this is all. This is all again. Like this is all. None of this is actually accurate. It doesn't represent what's happening in the brain or, <laughs> or in any of the anatomy. But, uh, but yeah. And there, there you have the reptile brain. And then on top of it is is the human brain, uh, which is much more like a computer. You have the cortex. Often it's called the neocortex because the idea is that it's new. Um, and so while there are parts of the brain called cortex, um, there are parts of the brain uh, that are limbic cortices or limbic tissues. There is indeed a part of the brain that neuroscientists would call a brain stem. The idea that they map onto all of these different animals that, you know, each have their own place in kind of this evolutionary history um, that becomes more and more complex. That entire narrative, I think, um, is very old. It's an ancient uh, narrative, and it, it, it just so happens to be wrong. Fast. So that was so clearly delineated. And Ursula, I want to give you a chance to get in here as well. But I just want to make sure that I'm tracking and understanding so that part of the also the idea as we go through, you know, in the embryo, this sort of fish stage view and all of that is that then as we are developing as young humans, we our brains are developing sort of mapping also onto this supposed evolution way and we get the earlier instincts first and then later we get other parts of the brain and then the last thing we sort of get as we grow up is the neocortex and our prefrontal cortex and that that's kind of been the way that what we've been taught right yeah i mean i think i think we left recapitulation theory it belongs to this guy ernest Haeckel um in the in the in the 1800s i think we left that a long time ago but i think i think the triune brain theory is uh older, but it has same, many of those same urges, the same urges to mm. say that, look, I as a body represent in me the entire history of life. And mm. at my core, I have the most ancient part. And that as you work your way radially out from my core to my outer, cross my outer being, I get more sophisticated, more human, more fully realized. I think that that's represented in this kind of recapitulation theory that was popular, um, you know, in, in Europe, in the, in the, in the, in the 19th century. And I think that now the trying brain is very similar. It appeals to many of those same instincts um, that Western philosophy gives us. The idea that, you know, at our core is biology and then our passions and then, uh, you know, our rationality, this instincts, emotions, rationality. I just, um, so, and, and I think we're taught the trying brain today as if it were true the same way that they were taught recapitulation in the, 1900s, and they thought it was true, um, even though it's, it's definitely not. Uh, you know, um, many animals develop in the same way. And we'll, we could actually talk about this, the way that uh, many animals share a development plan. In fact, all mammals have a, an incredibly coordinated, incredibly conserved development plan, and probably all vertebrates do too. So there's not like, you know, um, part of it is reptilian because uh, part of it is mammalian because we actually share a great deal. Wow. Fascinating. Er, er, yeah, Ursula, go ahead. I want to give you a chance to get in with a, with well, a question Well, I mean, here. I am just uh, intently <laughs> listening um, and um, totally uh, sort of drawn into this notion that it is, that that we do carry the whole history of our evolution. And, and it makes me also think that, you know, we have been believing this theory for so many years um, I think part of the problem is that it is somewhat threatening and really challenging to now suddenly turn this on its head and say what we've, you know, believed for years and years and years is now no longer true. And certainly when Anne and I looked at uh, Dr. Barrett's um, research, we had a little bit of a similar reaction. It's like, oh, my goodness, now what do we have to change that is in alignment with this, uh, with this research and, you know, and how challenges this can be. So I think it's part of human, it's part of being a human to somehow resist something that we've been doing and believing for, you know, years and years and years. I want to add one more piece of context here too, Joseph, and then back to you, is that the other thing I've seen is in the leadership emotional intelligence world, coaching world, even talking about the brain at all is about 10 years old. 
it's just young. And so everybody got super excited about this idea of amygdala hijacks and my reptilian brain. Mm-hmm. That was, that's only, so that there's this conversation that is barely starting in this field, that there's something going on in the brain. And so then to come in, and Ursula and I have, have, have been advocates for this, certainly for the last two, two and a half years, of saying, hey, that's not right. We need to look at it with more complexity. But it's kind of like saying to somebody, you just learned how to walk, and now we're telling you you're walking wrong. <laughs> there's a there's some context there as well. Just go ahead. You had something you were going to add. And yeah. You know, no. I mean, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no. I. No, no. You go ahead. Um. Yeah. So I think I think it's um it's tempting to center our experience on a number of different levels and to be reluctant to let go of that. And so um, while I'm reluctant to tell a story about, like, science giving us, um, you know, an incredible amount of uh, progress that only goes in one direction, as if, you know, everything is leading towards the understanding we have today, it's all been, you know, trial and error until we get right where we are now, I can tell a little bit of a story um, where this work um, helps in, in a way to enlighten us by knocking us away from the center of, of a universal story about life. So I think in just the same way that you find, um, you know, uh, the uh, persecution of astronomers, right, um, by, by, by the church, um, by the, you know, scientists of their time for claiming that maybe the earth wasn't the center of the universe, um, the same way that you find uh, maybe Darwin's, uh, you know, uh, revelations in, in the 19th century um, be resisted because they knock humans out of the center of the story of life. Um, the work of some of the folks that I've been really privileged to work with, in particular two women, right? Uh, Barbara Stemley, who I'll talk to you a little bit about, and Dr. Barrett. Um, I think that this work knocks us, uh, even humans, out of the center of the mammalian story, right? Or out of the center of the um, story of uh, animals with brains or of, uh, of thinking creatures. Um, I think that you know, and, and I take that kind of as a, uh, it is jarring, of course, to, to, to look back um, at all the different uh, times that we've used convenient and useful explanations and to have those be challenged, especially, and here's the thing, if, they, if those explanations backed up practices that worked in that moment, that we know worked because they led to good outcomes, because they helped the people who we are bound and kind of sworn to help, as I think, uh, you know, coaches and plenty of people that work on uh, medicine and performance are, um, I think it's a bit jarring to, to be told that actually the, the truth that, that underlie that, that match with the things that I'm told in my culture, in a courtroom, in a boardroom, um, you know, the, the books I read in my bedroom and the conversations I have with my partner about our children, with my family about our parents. I think all of that's, that's jarring and I don't want to take away from, from any of that. Um, I think that that's something that we all have to kind of uh, develop practices around ourselves as we as we learn more. Yeah, and I think, you know, I really love what you're saying. It's sort of like, because, let me see if I'm tracking right with you, because I think this is something that Ursula and I have, have come to understand, is that there was a degree of helpfulness in terms of talking about this model that's not actually scientifically validated because it gave people an understanding that, you know, gave them something of there's a different way maybe my brain is processing right now. But so it it helped up to a certain amount. Understanding the more complexities and understanding that, no, your reptilian brain didn't just take over and make you do this kind of thing, but understanding it, we'll talk maybe a little more about the metaphor we've been playing with is like as an orchestra, as an interconnected, highly interdependent system. Um, Understanding things like the prediction process of emotions, it for me at least, and Ursula, you can weigh in as well, it took what was helpful and it made it even more powerful in terms of working with people. It, like it, it was like a puzzle piece that sort of fit a little bit, moving to a puzzle piece that like snapped right into place. Like, oh, yes. So it, it upped the game, I think, in terms of being able to support people. Ursula, has that been kind of your take as well? Yeah, 
Well, it's uh, it it ups the game, uh, not only in regards to helping other people, but it upped my own uh, game. Uh, I think uh, the reason why this more structured triune brain uh, was so appealing to people is that it's less complex, and there is then this part where we don't have to take necessarily any kind of responsibility because it's just a, you know, sort of knee-jerk reaction of the brain. Now with this new information and this research, what ups my game is to say, no, you are responsible because you can, there are things that you can change. And I think that is what is the challenge um, in regards to, you know, personal evolution, but also to bring this into, into coaching. Um, and it is helpful because I think then at the same time, people can also make different choices. While before it was well, sort of like where there aren't any. Right. Um, you know, you make me think of an actual real life story, sort of the difference. So I was, um, I had to go inspect a house that I own but haven't been living in yesterday. I'm moving back into it. And I had no idea what to predict. I had no idea. Um, it could have been fine. It could have been a big mess. And I noticed that when I don't know what to predict, what ends up happening is that my brain tends to go to, well, predict the worst because, you know, then I know at least I have the energy for the, for the worst. Now, all of this is me breaking it down. In reality, what's happening as I'm driving to this place is, um, you know, things are happening in my body with adrenaline. My heart is beating faster. Years ago, I would have explained like I'm having a bit of an amygdala hijack. What I knew then is, okay, I'm predicting something. I've got some kind, of, some kind of process going on where I'm worried about the worst case scenario. And I literally said to myself, okay, what, like, what can you control here? What can you predict about yourself? And I, I'm driving there and I'm saying to myself, you have gotten, you've had a tough year. You've gotten through some very difficult situations. This is just one more. You can do this. And so instead of being in this kind of like, oh, my God, my lower part of the brain, the fear-based brain took over and I'm in fight, flight, or freeze, what I'm saying to myself is, yep, I've got some emotion going on. What, what, how can I come back to ground? And um, ended up not getting sort of as awash in, in bio, I think in, in a biochemical state where I was less um, able to do what I needed to do. Does that, does that make sense, um, what I'm saying? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> yeah. No, um, absolutely. Yeah. And, and maybe I can offer kind of uh, two ancillary ideas from uh, psychology that can help us think about this a little. Why, when we talk to ourselves in a certain way, when we think about ourselves as being made up of different types of parts, as being constituted by different types of processes, that might change our relationship with ourselves. So the two ideas that I'm going to put out there, one of them is psychological distance, um, mm -hmm. which I think is worth getting into. And the yep. other is the idea of the dimensions of mind perception. Um, so I'll start actually with that second one first real quick. So this is based on a wonderful book. I recommend it to your listeners, to your colleagues. It's called The Mind Club. It's by um, the late, uh, great Dan Wegner uh, and his graduate student, uh, Kurt Gray, um, who uh, it was written, it was published posthumously. Kurt finished up, up, up the manuscript, but based on work that they did while at Harvard with a great deal of colleagues. Um, uh, I'll say there's a kind of interesting uh, um, relationship between Kurt and our lab. Um, Kurt is married to an incredible uh, neuroscientist named Kristen Lindquist. They're both based uh, North Carolina. Um, Kristen Lindquist was a former student of uh, Dr. Barrett and Dr. Quigley. Yeah. So um, I'm really happy cool. to kind of throw to, to some work that's uh, at least, you know, scientific in-laws of ours. Um, but this book uh, is absolutely incredible. And what it says is that um, there's this thing uh, that happens in, the, in, in your brain when you perceive uh, um, what they call cryptomines. These are beings or agents or just things in the world that seem to be moving around and doing their own things. It could be a car that moves by itself. It could be an animal. It could be a person. It could be a corporation. But an entity that seems to be doing some mix of things in the world. And it says that um, you basically assess these crypto minds, whether it's a frog or a friend, on two dimensions. One of those dimensions is the dimension of experience. 
this is how much you think that uh, this being experiences pain. It has the capacity mm. to feel pleasure. Um, and the other is agency. How much is this thing computing? What is its capacity to do? And so these two dimensions, uh, Kurt found, map a lot onto our intuitions about uh, morality. Namely, he finds that when we think of something as uh, having more of a experience dimension to it, it has the capacity to be morally patient. That means that uh, when something happens to it, it's not responsible. Like if you get mad at a baby and you end up hurting the baby, it's never the baby's fault, right? The baby right. is not a moral agent in that situation. It's a moral patient. It's your fault for doing things to the baby. The baby gets things done to it. Um, yes. Whereas uh, experience is really tied to moral agency. If you think of something, uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, whereas agency is tied to moral agency. So when you think something has the capacity to think, compute, and do to perform actions on the world, you think that it's responsible for, for, what, it, for what it does. Um, it is then mm -hmm. the, moral, uh, the moral agent. Uh, it's responsible for harms that it causes or that results from an interaction with it. And so it's kind of interesting. Um, the, the way that I think about this is that experience is an animalistic thing and that agency is a mechanistic thing. Um, you, there's, a, there's a wonderful chart from a paper called Dimensions of Mind Perception that's also in the book. But I think that in some sense, when we see part of ourselves as animal, we see it as morally patient, as experiencing, right? And when we biologize part of ourselves as instinctual or animal, we say, this is the part of us that has things happen to it and that just responds, that feels a lot of amounts of pain, that feels pleasure, that gets, you know, worked up in the way that is connoted when you say amygdala hijack. Whereas mm -hmm. we say there's a part of us that is like a computer, that is this cortex, that is this neural net, that is this rationality, that's the part that's morally agent. And so it's kind of the role of all of these strategies when we move ourselves away from hijack or limbic control or whatever we want to call it to that, 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 that higher layer. I think that there's the reason that that's tempting is because that moves us from being morally patient to being morally agent. Now, sometimes we want to be morally patient. We don't want to be responsible for the, the harms that we did to ourselves or to others. And in that case, we can claim, right, that we were at that point controlled by the animal part of ourselves, which maps so neatly onto experience and onto patience as opposed to agency. Right, mm. and maps onto that, that whole triune brain. You know, oh, sorry, you know, my, my reptilian brain made me do it. Right. Mm -hmm. and, 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 yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there's that psychological. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, keep going. Cause then I was going to, uh, I was going to ask you. So if uh, I want to hear the rest of what you're saying, but then I also want to go to, okay. So if the triune brain isn't accurate, how do we, and maybe this is a big challenge. How do we understand and explain it in a way that, sort of just the average person or even a middle schooler or a teenager could, can get it and, um, and work with it. But um, finish what you were going to say first. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I think the other thing is that there's a lot of um, research on the idea of psychological distance. That is that oh, right. you can be, that. Yes. yeah, that you can refer to yourself when you refer to yourself in the third person and describe yourself mm -hmm. instead of using I just in the third person. Um, it actually changes the types of decisions that you're likely to make, the type of advice you're likely to give yourself. When you think of yourself um, in the future, that's another type of psychological distance. There are a ton of interventions in the social psychology literature that can actually change how closely you feel to different versions of yourself, and that'll actually have um, impacts on um, how, what you would advise yourself to do, whether that's delay gratification or you know, feel bad for yourself, all, all, all sorts of, you know, or save money for, for, for the future. Um, and I think that there's some, you know, and there hasn't been work done on this enough. I, I'd love to, um, you know, if anyone's interested, work on this a little bit. But I think that there's some, there's something that happens with our psychological distance from ourselves when we describe ourselves in different ways, right? These are all just different ways of kind of breaking down and cutting ourselves up into pieces that we attribute different things to. And I think that we know that there are psychological processes that relate to that. So if you say, you know, it was, uh, you know, like when you even say my brain made me do it, that's different from saying that um, I did that. And at the end of the day, I think, the, the, you know, you mentioned responsibility. 
I'm not sure that neuroscience can tell us about responsibility entirely. I know that a lot of the work that we do in our lab says that people have more control than they, they think that do. Dr. Barrett, um, that's, you know, mm -hmm. that's the name of her, her TED Talk, basically. It's, it's, it's basically those words. Um, I think all of that stuff is true. This work gives you a different perspective on what it is that you can change and what, you, what it is you can control. At the same time, I think, um, you know, when we really are asking about what the causes of a person's behavior are and what can be done to change it, that's on some level uh, a question about what an individual can do. And I think when we live in a society where people have um, sometimes only the choices that society gives them or the experiences that society gives them, I think that's somewhat of a political question, not just a scientific yeah. one. It happens that my politics match with Dr. Barrett's on this one, but I think that it's something that we all have to um, kind of really pay a lot of attention to, not just take for granted. Yeah, I think I would agree with you. I think it's systemic. And I also just, and I would not present this as the answer, but coaching itself is a, is it, when it's done well and not just what do you want and, you know, I think about sort of the Tony Robbins way, like go get it and, you know, it's, we know it as a much more subtle process. It is disruptive by its very nature. And it ideally, you know, if I'm working with a client, what they're going to come at the end of the time we work together, they're going to come under, they're going to have a, achieved a, an understanding that they do have a lot more control than they thought through the processes that we, that we are helping them build and hopefully pattern in through some neuroplasticity, um, a disruption of kind of the world the way they've been told it is. The other thing I wanted to mention is that one of the, one of the core aspects and core ethics of coaching is that we don't give advice. But what Ursula and I have certainly come to see, and this goes to that psychological distance, is that it's, we don't give advice, but it is tremendously powerful to create a container where the person gives themselves advice. Works really well. It's like, they, I'm not going to tell you, you know, hey, delay gratification, just keep at it. But when they tell themselves that, it absolutely connects. So uh, just to underline what you were saying there, I love that. Mm, that's powerful. And, that, and sometimes you need a container or a provocative question, or someone sort of holding, helping you step into that psychological distance. Um, and that is something that I think um, a therapist can do, a coach can do, any sort of anybody in that kind of profession that is uh, part of what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think um, there was a, some, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not well-versed well in any of this, but I remember there was some um, I think some spiritual teacher that has a, has a teaching that starts off with this idea that uh, this is going to be really obvious to y'all probably, but I forget who he was. He says he's sitting on a park bench and he has this thought, you know, he stayed up all night. Um, I can't stand myself or I can't live with mm. myself. Um, and then he says, but it's kind of wild here because there's an I and then there's a myself and those are separate. Um, and that's when he realized that, you know, he was the, he was the I and the myself was just something that he was creating or vice versa. I, I forget, but this idea that you can split yourself up into, into yeah. parts and that that's something that we, you know, we could do through practices that are, you know, have the language of neuroscience around them or practices that don't, I just think on its own, that's just an incredibly, an incredibly powerful set of ideas to be, to be experimenting with. Um, well, you know, and, and I, and yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, because in the splitting into parts and something that Ursula and I have been working with for a number of years is saying, is the work of Dr. Dan Siegel, uh, who's, you know, really big on this idea of integration, where what we're doing is we're differentiating, we're splitting into parts, but then ultimately through the process of differentiation, then also linking back together. So differentiation and linkage. Um, that that is maybe the magic spot, the parts, but then not having them be fragmented within a being, having them be differentiated and linked at the same time. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, there's a huge alienation and it, it, there's a kind of triune braininess to it of saying that, you know, okay, I'm going to empower that rational part of you or I'm going to empower this part of you that drives and it's going to get separated from all these other things that you associate with your bodily awareness and with everything else. Um, Although in, you know, in the kind of story we tell in our lab, it's, 
it's always the body and the brain. The brain is body. The brain is for the body. The yes. Brain, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> nice. inseparable from the body. It exists on its, on its behalf and couldn't without it. Right. So, um, oh, I mean, I think that. our, love yeah. That. Well, so how um, would you understand, so we're saying that it's not that we have these three brains and I often say it's like, you know, there's, it's not a layer cake where we have this one layer and it remained intact and then the next layer and the next layer. How, what is the, the, the best way of explaining what's really going on in these different areas of, because we do know the brain does have different areas that play larger or smaller roles in things. So how do you explain it? Yeah, so there are a couple of key ideas um, that, that we have to put together here. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll also say that, you know, I mean, this is, this is the most compelling um, understanding that we have now. It's one that's being developed by hundreds and thousands of neuroscientists across the world. Um, but we're never really, you know, getting to the absolute truth when we do something like as noisy and as, um, you know, situated as behavioral science. We're just getting less wrong, I think. Um, but the idea now, um, I think that's, an, that's an important one, is that um, all brains are, uh, you know, what, what are brains for? So I'm going to be completely borrowing Dr. Dr. Barrett's words here. And you might think that your brain is there to give you this experience of seeing things, the ability to make decisions by remembering, um, you know, this ability to hear and to talk, importantly. Um, but that's kind of a very, that's an explanation that really focuses on this set of organs and, uh, you know, living situations that, you know, humans have today that really wouldn't hold up for a dog or a muskrat or an aardvark, right? And right. so what we, what we re when we really look at it, we find um, that brains have had more or less the same parts, now not arranged in the same way, not all doing the same things, but the basic bow plan or layout has been the same for, for brains for about 500 million years. Um, and you ask yourself, what's been happening across that time? Why do, why do brains change? And well, you, you find that they actually change um, in some incredibly predictable ways based on the size and the needs of, of the body that they have. Um, and so, you know, you ask yourself what, what the brain is doing and you see that it's taking in all of this information from all these different types of sensors, right? There's skin cells that can tell uh, about vibration. There's uh, cells on the outside of your body, inside your nose that can tell when different chemicals get on them. Your eyes can register all this light. Your ears can register um, all these, uh, you know, vibrations and displacements in air. Um, and so the brain's taking all these things in and it's putting out information into the body basically one type of information, which is motor behavior, right? It's sending information to the cells that will, that will move your body, to the, to the muscles, right? And so what you find is that the brain's main job in this type of scheme is to keep your body alive, to keep it able to move through the world, to understand what the world around it is doing, um, and that it's doing this not by, uh, you know, reacting to various bits of light and sound that enter, but by building up um, a model of what is in the body that, you know, it has access to, what's happening in its gut, in its muscles, um, and uh, what it needs to do to keep that body alive, because that body is using all sorts of different types of substances to stay alive. It needs oxygen, it needs nutrients, it needs blood sugar, right? It needs glucose. Um, and it needs to be away from all sorts of different types of dangers. And so what the brain is doing in, in that sort of perspective is it's just making extremely kind of uh, educated guesses based on what's happened to it before about what it uh, needs to do to stay alive in the world to make sure that it's getting all of those resources before it needs them and, uh, you know, avoiding all sorts of dangers and getting uh, to, to where it needs to go. Um, whether that's to, to procreate, to feed, to learn, right, all of these different needs that the, that the body has. So that's why, you know, sort of there's so many big takeaways that we took from, from Dr. Barrett's book, but that is why, and one of the big ones was the triune brain isn't, is not accurate. The, one of the other is that we're not reacting, we're predicting, because we're trying to, 
you know, keep this body alive and know what are the resources that are going to be needed. If I'm understanding, if I'm understanding correctly. Completely. Yeah. There was this, there was this big move that happened, um, you know, over the course of the, the late 1800s and the early 1900s where people decided to, uh, ignore the mind and just treat everything that happens to any organism as stimulus response, right? This was the, mm-hmm. the heyday of work on, on mice. Um, this was the heyday of something called uh, behaviorism. And the idea there, and what it really cemented into um, our understanding of, of nature uh, as it got, you know, this, this idea got spread into all types of uh, fields called human engineering, into advertising, into medicine, into politics, was the idea that, you know, you, uh, you can stimulate animals in different ways uh, and they'll respond. Um, and, you know, if because that's the way that you experiment on them, that must be the actual process that's happening within them. And uh, the work that, you know, we do in the laboratory that a lot of other labs have, have come to is that the brain is actually much more generative than, than a simple, uh, you know, um, stimulus response computer, that the brain is actually um, creating all sorts of predictions that can be confirmed or uh, disconfirmed by its experience with the world. And that uh, what it's basically trying to do is uh, um, stay alive and have the energy to learn all the things that are uh, kind of relevant and important to it so that it can, can keep itself alive. Um, and I think uh, this is also something that, you know, touches into our experience with ourselves and how we judge what it is that we do uh, with, with other people, um, with, you know, at, at work and at home, right, whether or not we're, we're reacting or actually generating what's going on. There's a lot of uh, temptation to, again, uh, associate, you know, this animalistic part of ourselves with these reactions that we just had to do, right, that they were our instincts, they were our biology, they were our reflex. Um, there were, you know, scientists for a long time thought that you could just break down all of animal behavior into a complicated interaction of a bunch of different reflexes. But I think our view is that it's, it's going to be really tough to, to do that because of this prediction function. Um, there's also this, this important distinction between something we call, uh, or you might know as homeostasis, and then this idea of allostasis. And so homeostasis is this very kind of stimulus response idea that what the body is doing is trying to, like a thermostat, maintain some set point for all of the different uh, features of the body, whether that's temperature or blood sugar, right? The body has some idea of exactly where it has to be at all times and has to maintain that. Um, and what we, we've learned from the work of uh, Dr. Peter Sterling um, and, and, and uh, you know, his many colleagues over, over the past, uh, you know, probably the past 50 years at, at this point is that um, that's just not true, that the brain is actually making predictions about what the body will need and is, altering uh, its behavior in order to meet those predictions. So um, in that way, you know, your experience of heading to that house where it's, you're expecting the worst that, you, you know, you're mobilizing all of this energy to, to try to deal with that worst case scenario. Um, there's one way of understanding that as stimulus response and another way, as you, you explained, of understanding that as a, a series of predictions and then adjustments for those predictions. Yeah, and disruption, and that's where I, what I, what I really, you know, what first struck me is that if I'm only reacting, all I, I mean, this is really basic, but if, if we are just reaction machines, and all I can hope is that next time I'll react differently, I can train myself sort of in terms of emotional intelligence to manage my reactions. But if I understand that I'm predicting, I can intervene and I can question that prediction. So it gives me, I feels like her work just feels like it gives me more of hands on the steering wheel. Ursula, what is coming up for you that we want to be sure we answer before we're at the top of the hour here, before we be sure we ask? Um. Well, I, um, I, uh, I'm sort of looking at uh, how we have been trying to explain this, um, this way uh, to our students and that uh, we have uh, used the metaphor of the orchestra of the of the brain trying to paint a picture that the brain is is more of a system it's more systemic it's not just as ancestors a three layer cake um and so i am curious about uh, you know what do you think of you know for us to use the metaphor of the orchestra of the brain 
uh, to help like ordinary, less scientifically inclined people to understand um, this newer research and um, make it practical and applicable to them. Well, I'm, I love to talk about metaphors, um, and so we could, you know, we could spend another hour just on, on this one <laughs> metaphor, um, but I, I, can tell, I can tell you a few things that it brings to mind for me. Um, so th there are some things I love, I love about this. One of them is that an orchestra has um, different sections, right, um, and mm -hmm. that those sections actually change um, what they do, how they coordinate, their size, their level of activity for the piece that they're playing. I think that that's a really useful idea to have when you're thinking about, about you know, the brain both in its structure, that is how it develops and lays itself out into different parts, and in its function. Those are both really useful ideas to have on hand. Um, another idea that I really love there, um, and this is going to be a little complicated, but the idea that um, the orchestra is coordinated um, for the purpose of, uh, you know, playing some sort of piece, but that it adapts to things that might go wrong, right? That if, you know, for example, you have, you know, a melody drop out somewhere, it'll get picked up somewhere else. There's an idea there that's really key to the work of our lab and many other labs' understanding of the brain, which is degeneracy. And it's important because it tells you that a melody or a function can be realized in a bunch of different ways. And just because you don't have a piano doesn't mean that you can't play some incredible piece by Bach. Maybe you displace it to the flute. So I, I, lo I love these, these, these I ideas. I love that. I love yeah, that. Where I does think, it break um, down? <laughs> oh, sorry. I love that. Yeah. And I, I've, never, I've never thought about, um, you know, what happens when there is a piece that breaks down and how, where can it be picked up by someone else as it relates to the orchestra, which I think is a really important aspect of that metaphor. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, and I mean, so I... All... Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, and so I, I, love, I love that part of it. Then there's this idea of this conductor. So the idea that some orchestras are conducted and some aren't. But sometimes that there could be someone who's in, you know, entrainment and synchrony are also really key ideas when we think about the brain. The brain does have its own sort of, uh, you know, music of activity um, when it has different networks that really, you know, we say work in concert. And it's no, it's no uh, coincidence that we use that type of language, that we think about synchrony, entrainment, all of these things that also happen when people make music together, when they're coordinated or uncoordinated. Um, there are a few things that I think about also, um, maybe from a more kind of critical approach or maybe some caveats when, when we think about this metaphor. So okay. I'll just say one more thing that I love about this. So the idea of um, the, the brain as an orchestra, actually neuroscientists use this metaphor a lot when they talk about recording the brain. And the metaphor that they usually bring up is that uh, Recording the brain using our existing technologies is like trying to record, you know, a, a philharmonic by putting microphones on the sidewalk outside of the building, which is to say, <laughs> which is to say that our existing technologies, you know, it's, it's nowhere close to being able to mic every violin um, and, you know, every single timpani or whatever, right? It's, it's a completely different, different ballgame. And so we'd love to have the type of fidelity and robustness of recording of information that you can get from a really nicely recorded orchestra. Um, some ideas that I would bring up, one of them is that an orchestra is a social group of people that's, a, you know, it's a historical ensemble. Um, you know, there's a wonderful paper I love, um, I think it's called Nervous Figures by a literature scholar at Tufts named Jeff Kaiser. And what he writes about is this idea that um, just as we were really discovering the gross anatomy of the brain, and it really was gross, they were cutting out you know, brains from corpses and passing them around and you know, excavating the vasculature and doing all sorts <laughs> of crazy stuff. Um, when they were doing this, there was this theory that was really popular that you know, folks like, philosophers like John Locke would have subscribed to, which is the idea of animal spirits. That there were mm. these little fluids, these tiny little people that flowed to and fro the brain across the body and that when these animal spirits were melancholic, you were melancholic. When they were happy, you were happy. When they were excited, you were excited. When you couldn't control part of your nervous system, it's because the flow of animal spirits broke down. And what, what Jess Kaiser does is he looks at the actual language that was in the, in this time a lot of uh, science was written in the form of, or popularized and spread in the form of these kind of uh, poems about biology. And there were other types of texts that were more kind of, uh, 
stayed, but what they thought of these uh, animal spirits, they were like soldiers or sentries or servants. Um, and there was this kind of problem of if the parts that make us up, metaphor, right, I know, I know you're not actually saying the brain is like an orchestra. Back then they thought that the body was actually controlled by animal spirits. But when you say that these inert materials that give us life are like people, then you have to explain the brains that, you know, of the orchestra members, of the animal spirits. And in that way, you're just making, you know, you're kicking the can down the road or making the can smaller. You're saying now that we're controlled by little beings that have their own brains and their own way of thinking. <laughs> right. Um, right. So I think that that's one thing right. to think about. And so back then they thought about, you know, this grand, you know, these people lived in empires that were connected by roads that were guarded, um, patrolled by all sorts of different people who played you know, roles like soldiers or sentries. That's what they had access to. And so that's what they thought the body was like. Today, we might think the body is like a company or like an orchestra or like a democracy. And I think it's really important to think about how we think people coordinate and when we map that onto how we think the body coordinates. Um, yeah, I yeah, can sorry. see the... Well, I think that... I think it's part of our our desire to start, and it's, I really love the complexity that you're bringing in. And um, I love the way you, you bring in the questions because it doesn't feel like you're saying that's a bad metaphor. It feels like you're saying, okay, any, anything is going to have some limitations. And this is what we need to be aware of is the sort of when we overly personify something that then um, takes away from what we're trying to get to, which is, which is I think more the systemic nature of the of the brain is the thing that we just keep trying to push our students to understand and i'm really struck by and i know this is you know you know this probably way better than we do but that whatever the current view of mechanics and progress is is how we're going to think about the brain so people do love to talk about the brain like a computer because that's what we've you know evolved to mechanistically but it's not and so to me that's the other reason I sort of like this, this more orchestra thing. But I do see what you're saying about when you start overly personifying, that just ends up being its own limitation. I don't think I said that that well, but I think I get what you're, mm. you're pointing to. Yeah, I think, I think metaphors light the way towards certain realizations and then, um, you know, make it harder for us to, to understand others. And so I think that there's yeah. a difference between different types of metaphors. Um, I think the metaphor you talked about, the brain as computer, that's like a constitutive metaphor for so much of, you know, science today, where you'll have people walking around literally thinking that the brain, you know, process has input output, it processes, right? right? And so I think right. people like Elon Musk, who loves the trying brain metaphor, and who's running an incredibly, um, you know, an incredibly well-funded, a very kind of popular brain-computer interface company called Neuralink. He goes on Joe Rogan, right, in the same episode where he, I think folks might know this because he smoked weed on Joe Rogan and his Tesla stock dropped like 6%. <laughs> in that same episode, I you'll hear him, that. right, this, this, you know, this supposed Edison of our time talking about how the brain has a limbic, you know, part, and then it has this computer on top of it, and that he's inventing a fourth layer, and that's how we should think about computers, um, yeah. I think some people yeah. can take this stuff super literally, but, you know, when you're talking about the brain as orchestra, if you're doing that to give somebody a way of conceptualizing and navigating around their experience in a way that's useful to them, I mean, it's very hard for me sitting where I am to say that, like, people shouldn't use the ideas that are useful to them. It's just a question of when we're making scientific claims about them and when they start influencing scientific discovery, which they, they always do, it's a question of just how can we manage that and be aware of that. Well, I really love what you're saying that metaphors are not designed to be the thing itself. They're designed and I really I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely steal that, Ursula, I like that they light the way to something. They give us a way mm. to look at it. And even the idea of the triune brain, that's a metaphor. You know, that's three layers and you know, we're thinking about it in that way. So this is just a more complex it it, it hopefully holds some of the complexity, but can still be simple enough for someone who doesn't want to get into all of the complexity of all the neuroscience to get a sense of it that is somewhat more accurate um, and light the way I to think, hopefully a better understanding. I mean, I think, 
I think you can recognize this tension. I mean, when I was a kid, I watched Shrek, right? And Donkey tells Shrek, you know, um, Shrek, Shrek's like, I'm an ogre. I have layers. Donkey says, you're like a cake or a parfait. And Shrek says, no. Donkey's like, you're like an onion. An onion has layers. And that, that feels better to Shrek there, right? Um, I think, you know, there are all sorts of different ways that we're tempted to explain ourselves. We choose the ones that kind of match with, our understanding of ourselves. I just think it's important to remember that those have, those choices have kind of consequences for how we interpret others, right? The way that we explain ourselves is likely going to be the way that we explain others. Um, you mm-hmm. know, we should just be, be aware of when we do that. Um, and you're, I think you're right. You said earlier that like the neurosciences has entered coaching about 10 years ago. I mean, it's no surprise, like right after the decade of the brain, right? As all of these mm-hmm. technologies are filling our science fiction and all these like business papers, I think it's, you know, it's no surprise, and I, I, I can only imagine it's going to grow. I don't think we're going to – I don't think that the, the tide of the, the trinan brain is really being stemmed, even as, you know, our work is getting out there more and more. Well, at the ICF conference, you know, Dr. Barrett did a fabulous, fully-packed session. Everybody loved it. Everybody was writing copious mm-hmm. notes. And then the very next person was someone who used to be associated with Neuroleadership Institute, uh, smart guy, and he basically came on and – and basically said, yeah, there's these two parts of the brain. And, you know, kind of, I don't think he paid any attention to what she had said or, or anything. And, and people were kind of looking around going, wait a minute, is that, isn't that exactly opposite what she just said? And this is a well-respected neuroscientist who used to be part of one of the leading, you know, whether they leading organizations. So like you totally. said, it hasn't died and people are hearing uh, people who they can, you know, they respect saying this. Hey, I have one, I think maybe last question. And one of the things people love to talk about is this idea of amygdala hijacks. And uh, mm-hmm. some people know even Dan Siegel has this wonderful hand model of the brain and he shows the brain going mm. offline. And this idea of, oh my gosh, I've had an amygdala hijack. What would be a, how would you explain amygdala hijacks when we know well, two things. Know from Dr. Barrett, it's not even necessarily the amygdala that is even involved because it's not all the time. And it, it's not, again, this idea that this lower part of the brain is taken over. How would you explain that feeling of, oh, my gosh, I'm all of a sudden, whoosh, I'm less in control if we don't talk about amygdala hijacks? Yeah, I mean, I, I watched, and this, this was wild. I was scrolling through TikTok, and I saw this. FBI negotiator has like a master class, a guy named Bob Voss, talking about, you know, scientists map this almond-shaped region in the brain that dominates your thinking, that can control all of your yeah. brain, and it's 75% negative. And that means that, you know, your, you know your, your emotional brain that takes over the rest of your brain is likely to be, you know, it's going to make you have negative thoughts and you, in, order to, in order to be like a, you know, a macho FBI-type operator, peak performance, you've got to learn to manage that. Um, and I think, you know, this plays into all sorts of ideas we have about, um, for one, emotion as feminine, rationality as masculine. For another, mm. you know, we, we talk about people of other race, races that aren't white as more beastly or animalistic, right? This plays into all sorts of, like, crazy ideas that we have that are just suffused in our world about, um, you know, what it is to be animal and or what it is to be rational and in charge. That really has a lot more to do with, like, the politics of our organizations and society than it does with biology. Um, I'd say, look, in, you know, from our point of view, um, the, the brain exists to keep the body alive, right, to preserve, uh, you know, to, to do the process of allostasis. When there are needs that your body has that aren't being met, it's going to be really hard to do things that aren't related to getting those needs met. You know, mm. this comes up a lot in the work of, uh, of trauma-informed practices, too, mm-hmm. right? For sure. All this work comes yeah. up there, too, where, you know, you'll shut down your higher rational orders of thinking and talking. I think part of um, that, you know, is, is based I'm, on this. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I have to stop you here. Um, we have actually scheduled this for an hour, so we are going to get cut off in about uh, under oh. a minute. Oh, no. I'll just say, t- take care of your bodies, everybody. There's no way you'll ever get. Oh my God. I, I am we would so love to sorry. have you back. Yeah. <laughs> this was lovely. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I'm, I'm happy to be you in touch were... with anybody that hears this and would like to chat more. 
Yeah, you were amazing. We'd love to have you back maybe once the book is published. Um, but thank you so much. This was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and yeah, I have, really have a wonderful day. Yeah. Oh. Thank you so much, Joseph. And I really would like to know more about the amygdala hijack part. Uh, that uh, <laughs> would be a great part, too, that we, can, <laughs> that we can add on. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, and thanks very much, Joseph. And take care. Take much, care. Much appreciated. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.